the reason that the, the public health strategy of suppression is so critically important in this particular pandemic is that what it gets us is more time and we need to buy time. That is the entire ball game, folks. <laughs> that's, that's the beginning and end of this. We need to buy time. We need to buy time for our hospitals and our hospital systems and our healthcare system to ramp up their pandemic response teams. We need to buy time for ventilators to be built. We need to buy time for uh, PPE to be manufactured and shipped and received. We need to buy time to put um, staffing and space and systems and all of the things that, that have to happen in order for us to be able to treat the percentage of people who we predict will become very sick when infected. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. For this episode, I had the chance to speak with Dr. Kimia Saraf, who's an internist and a public health professional, a trauma specialist, and an executive coach. My second guest on the episode is Lisa Butler, who is a clinical social worker. And my third and final guest is Jessica Barker, who's worked in the mental health field for 20 years with a specialty in eating disorder research. We talk a lot about coronavirus and how first responders are coping right now. And then in about the second half of the episode, we get to a whole bunch of listener questions about mental and physical health during this time of lockdown and sheltering in place. Thank you for listening. And if you find this episode to be useful and you want to share it with your friends, I invite you to. And if you have questions that you'd like me to address in future episodes, please find me on Facebook or Instagram or on the website, atecpodcast.com. Thank you and please take care of yourself. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Kimia Saraf, a doctor and a trauma-informed coach for physicians and professionals. Welcome, Kimia. I'm so glad to be here with you, especially after such a rough uh, <laughs> connecting start on my oh, end. No, I'm just so glad that you have the time. I know this is a really, really, really busy and heightened time. And I, I want to ask you, can you tell listeners where you work out of, what city you're in? I am in Springfield, Illinois. So I am in flyover country or the heartland or corn country, however you want to you want to phrase it. So, but I am in the state capital of Illinois, which a lot of people on the coast forget because we always think of Chicago as being all of Illinois. And actually, um, the majority of Illinois is very rural and uh, Springfield is its capital. So that's yes. where I live. Yes. And have you practiced medicine there the whole time for all of your career? I left clinical medicine more than a decade ago, actually, to start a uh, nonprofit 
um, public health initiatives because that's my other hat. I am a, I am a, have a master's degree in public health. And so I started a public health initiative for uh, children in our community and um, have really been engaged in uh, public health programming and messaging around child and family health for the last more than a decade, 12 years, 13 years. So um, that's where I've, that's where I've spent the majority of my time. And then about almost five years ago, uh, went back to, to get some additional training in um, executive coaching and also uh, in, in trauma and to become a trauma specialist. And then I sort of melded all of that together into the work that I do now, specifically with physicians and other sort of high-level um, professionals, mostly in healthcare, some in education, who are experiencing a lot of what has been termed in the popular press as burnout, but really is, is secondary trauma. So when we, when we look at, so trauma um, has a couple of different um, explanations, depending on whether you uh, are working in trauma mitigation or if you're working in, in sort of surgical trauma. So most people think about trauma as being injury to the physical self. Um, when I'm talking about trauma, I am talking about injury to the psychological, emotional, uh, spiritual self. And that's where um, we're seeing a lot of things show up in our physicians. Um, trauma is a really interesting field to work in because it's actually younger than I am. And we really, the, the, our modern understanding of trauma anyway is really, is really, really young. We didn't know much about it until um, the late 1970s when physicians, psychiatrists in particular, began seeing uh, syndromes show up in um, soldiers coming home from Vietnam that they were working with in our VA hospitals. Um, then you sort of jump forward about two decades, and there was some excellent trauma work done by um, physicians who sort of stumbled into it uh, out of California. And then we, we ended up with the original ACEs study, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And from that grew a really wonderful, robust body of evidence around the way that childhood trauma impacts um, our health and our well-being. And then um, in the aughts, we began talking about this concept of secondary trauma, which really um, can't be distinguished in physical symptoms, can't be distinguished from primary trauma, but really comes from working in fields of chronic high toxic stress that morphs into to trauma-like symptoms over time. Um, and from really absorbing uh, the primary trauma of the people you're taking care of, too. So anyone who is in a first responder type of profession, uh, which is why I mentioned that I work with teachers also, anyone who works in a first responder type profession where you are encountering a lot of trauma in the people you're taking care of um, is, is going to... Uh, generally absorb some of that themselves. And, and, and if they don't have a, a supportive work environment um, that can morph into something that is, is harmful to, to body, spirit, and, and uh, emotional well-being. What, what drove you to, to this field? What, when did you know that you wanted to focus on trauma 
That's a great question. Um, with another long answer, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> my, I am the mom to four sons. I have, I have four boys and um, a husband who is an extremely busy uh, interventional cardiologist. And when my oldest son, um, who is now 18, I'll give you the punchline first, he's fine. Okay. When, my, when my oldest son was 13 years old, um, we diagnosed him with acute lymphoblastic leukemia, childhood mm. leukemia. And it carries with it um, a really, really long um, period of treatment, about three and a half years of daily chemo. Mm -hmm. um, the first year is very, very intensive. And, um, you know, and then there's an additional long period after that uh, where he required treatment. And being on the other side of the hospital bed with my son and watching um, my colleagues work and thrive or not um, mm -hmm. and watching the stress build in them and also witnessing some of that in my own husband really led me to begin thinking about the way that toxic stress impacts the body. And we had, I had been doing some work around, um, uh, trauma, childhood trauma, ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences for a while because we really wanted our programming for kids to to come to them with a trauma-informed lens. It's just the best way to teach, mm -hmm. especially vulnerable populations. And so it, it began to become clear to me, particularly as I was going back to um, get my coaching certification, that there was some really good places for me to intersect those two um, those two lenses. Mm -hmm. And so I developed this this trauma informed methodology for coaching first responders. Mm -hmm. um, and it works because you know here's the thing. if there were a way for for physicians to MacGyver themselves out of this stress, and uh, trauma that they are experiencing in the workplace out of the burnout, quote unquote, mm -hmm. they would have done it a long time ago. Uh, physicians are, are hard workers and creative thinkers and unafraid of labor, um, both physical and emotional and psychological and intellectual. So if there were a way for them to figure this out on their own, it would have been done already. Mm -hmm. um, it is time for a, a them to have a different approach. And, and one of the things that I found in my coaching with them is that, um, well, multiple things, multiple things. Number one um, is that physicians can rediscover their joy and their commitment to this profession that they love. I have yet to meet a physician who went into uh, the practice of medicine for personal gain. <laughs> I have yet to meet that physician. I know that physicians are much maligned in popular culture or have been up until this crisis. Um, That's interesting. But, I just, I feel like I need to just bookmark that and say, I'm not as aware of that. And I, I would love to know more about that. But in my opinion, and the people who I have in my circle, we, we don't feel that way about physicians, but I'm curious well, about that. I am delighted to hear that. I know that physicians have felt um, for, for a good while, really over the last decade, maybe even decade and a half, that there has been increased um, loss of autonomy, loss of respect, mm. loss of um, ability to treat and move and practice in the way that they want to. Um, and so 
as a result of that, um, there is a sense that that their every move and their every motive is questioned, either mm-hmm. by patients and or by um, you know hospital administration and other you know state regulation, national regulations, et cetera, et cetera. Really, in large part by insurance, also. Yes, I'm familiar so, with that is for sure. Yeah. So, you know, this is, but, but there's a way forward for them. There really is a way forward. There's a way to um, connect again with all of the motivations that drove them into medicine and make decisions around how to approach um, their day through increased resiliency capacitance building. So those are the kinds of things that that I coach around. But doing that with a trauma-informed lens and helping them to name that, um, because naming things is such a great resiliency builder, um, mm-hmm. really getting opportunity to, with another physician, someone who understands some of these pressure points, to offload it, to name it, and to move forward through it um, into... Um, some healing centered engagement because mm-hmm. nobody wants to stay and hang out in their trauma. Mm-hmm. It's just not a, it's not a great place to hang. Um, and, and for most physicians, it can be a pretty, pretty fast movement through it and, and back into a place where there's some, some professional joy and pride. For listeners to better understand, what is the difference between PTSD and secondary trauma? Degree of severity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, secondary trauma can become uh, post-traumatic stress. Um, and there is a difference between post-traumatic stress and a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and that also is degree, severity, um, you know, duration, etc. So mm-hmm. um, post-traumatic stress uh, is, a, is a continuation of this. If you, if you were to look at sort of a line from stress, which can be very healthy, actually. So if you, if you mm-hmm. picture a line and on the left-hand side of the line, you've got stress and on the right-hand side of the line, you have post-traumatic stress um, or, or trauma and or trauma, mm-hmm. you know, there are degrees. So stress is actually really good for us. We need to experience stress. It, it stretches our minds and our imaginations and teaches us uh, things about ourselves and the world in which we live and helps us to become more resilient, helps us to become more self-compassionate, and also helps us to understand that we are capable of facing things, figuring them out, surviving them, and moving on. I mean, stress itself, we talk about it as as a negative thing, and yet really it isn't, Mm -hmm. so long as there are periods of recovery in between stressful situations. Then you have... um, uh, acute uh, toxic stress, which I would argue is sort of what the entire world is experiencing right now. Um, sort of this mm-hmm. acute phase of very high levels, very, very high levels of stress. And that too, in and of itself, does not have to be damaging. Um, however, unrelenting toxic stress. So toxic stress that does not have periods uh, in which we um, in which we move through it, in which we I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. Um, if, it, if there are no breaks in it, if there's no opportunity mm-hmm. to mitigate it, if there's no opportunity to 
um, to recover for periods of time from it, that unrelenting toxic mm-hmm. stress over time becomes trauma. So even mm-hmm. toxic stress can be a good thing if you get nice mm. big opportunities to um, have have breaks and to process it. It is when mm-hmm. there is no downtime, there are no breaks between sort of that that one hit and the next and the next and the next that that becomes trauma. Mm-hmm. Which is definitely on my mind right now. I think that for people who are uh, physicians and then and nurses and anyone on the first responder front lines, that can look a little unrelenting right now. And then also for people at home during this lockdown time, when people are uh, watching the news all the time and getting orders from their government. So can you can you talk about it? Is there a way for anyone to mitigate this right now? Yes. The short answer is yes. So here's the great thing that we know about um, about trauma mitigation, and that is that you don't have to necessarily be a trauma mitigation specialist in order to mitigate trauma for people around you. So the the very, very best thing for the human body budget is another human. And one of the very, very best um, things that we can do in times of chronic toxic stress is make sure that we are connecting with one another. So when we, when I do trauma-informed trainings, when I go into a school district or a police department or a hospital, and I talk to them about um, all of the strategies that we need to deploy if we want to be a trauma-informed institution or a trauma-informed association, the thing that I always come back to, the, the, the number one takeaway for everyone is that the very best way to mitigate someone's trauma is through three words, listen, protect, and connect. And that is something all of us can walk away from even this podcast and deploy immediately with the people around us. Now, I will say that in order to deploy that, you also have to have some autonomic balance of your own. So you need to be um, talking to and interacting with people from a space of of some balance because, um, as I said earlier, the very best thing for the human body budget is another human. Also, <laughs> the very worst thing for the human body budget is another human, particularly if that <laughs> other human that you're talking with, if you're both really activated at that point in time, it's impossible to deactivate someone from a, a place of being very highly activated. And this is a great thing for us moms to remember when we're dealing with our children, right? I can't deactivate mm-hmm. my child if I'm, if I'm coming at him from a state of high activation. It just does not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's true also of interacting with others. So what do we do in times of high chronic toxic stress? The very first thing is put on your own oxygen mask. I mean, it's what they mm-hmm. teach us every time we climb onto a plane. Put on your oxygen mask before trying to help someone else. So, and, and the great thing about that is that that can be very highly individualized. So when I talk to folks about building their own personal resiliency, um, and I think of resiliency capacitance as this, as this great sort of almost soap bubble around us. And, and it, it flexes and comes in. And, and our resiliency is our ability to um, experience 
high stress or traumatic events and bounce back from them and, and, and keep moving. And so there, there really are five different key areas that go into how resilient we are as an individual. They're physical, uh, social, emotional, uh, spiritual, and financial. And, um, and when we take a hit in one of those areas, it's really important that we attend to, especially if that hit isn't something we can control, especially if that hit is something completely out of our control, as many of us are experiencing right now, then it's really important we tend to those things we can control. So um, under each of those five categories, it gets really personal. Um, I'll give you an example from my own life in my, in my spiritual category, I have several things that are, are almost background noise for me that I do every day. Um, I rise early, I get up before my kids are up, which is usually means around four 30. I like candles. I like <laughs> candles. I, I, um, you know, I, with great intention for people who are on my heart and my mind, I turn on quiet music. I spend some time, um, in sort of quiet reflection and then I move into the rest of the day. One of the things that I noticed as um, I was watching the sort of tidal wave of of coronavirus build in the distance um, is that those habits were the very first ones to fall off in my life. I was going to bed late. Mm -hmm. I was waking up. I was rolling over. I was grabbing my phone and I was running for the coffee pot. And Mm -hmm. I didn't even notice I'd done that until about two weeks had passed. And I was feeling myself getting really brittle. And uh, and I had to really take a step back and think, if I am going to have um, anything to give, then I better figure out how to how to increase my own resiliency in this. And, and that's when I started noticing, okay, this is what you teach. Where are you falling short in the stuff that you do on a daily basis just to, to be grounded, to to have some autonomic balance. That was one of the areas. So, so those are my personal ones. And I bet anybody who's listening has a whole bunch of personal things they do um, in their spiritual world that help to keep them balanced. Um, Physically, those are pretty common. They're, They're pretty much the same across human bodies, right? So I always like to start with anyone I'm working with on what are you doing physically to maintain your resiliency? And physically, we all have the same mm-hmm. needs. We all need to be hydrated, well hydrated, especially now when um, I have this <laughs> I have this coffee called Death Wish Coffee, which tells you <laughs> everything you need to know about my coffee habit. <laughs> Um, so I, you know, I cannot get by on death wish coffee. I need to be alternate dosing with, you know, a glass of water and my coffee throughout the day. Um, Mm -hmm. we need to be hydrated. We need to be getting physical activity, whatever that is that looks like, whatever that looks like for you. Um, if that's active play, if that's a hard workout, if that's yoga, if that's whatever that is, um, that has to happen every day. Um, we need eight hours of sleep. And doctors are, are 
a tough group on this one because we we take a really demented pleasure in how long we can work without sleep. Um, and, and that's sort of trained into us and it, it makes us feel superhuman. And yet we really aren't. Um, our, there is a there is a sleep debt that builds and it builds more quickly than any of us think. And particularly at a time when you're trying to re- remain healthy, eight hours of sleep a night mm-hmm. is a must. It's just a must. Mm-hmm. So I, I really am trying to remind folks, particularly folks who are stuck at home right now, that keeping, maintaining a bedtime and bedtime rituals and wake-up rituals is, is important through this. Good nutrition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all the same things that we talk about when we're not in crisis, um, but they are some of the first things to go in times of crisis. So mm-hmm. that's just a, a, a short overview, a 10,000-foot overview of, of some of the things that we mm-hmm. do to build resilience so that we're balanced, we are grounded, and then we are able to mitigate trauma for others. Only then. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and do you worry, do you worry right now about first responders? I worry about our first responders all the time. Now I am, Mm -hmm. I am, I am intensely worried and and I'm worried on a lot of different levels. Um, as I watch this roll out, I'm worried about their physical safety. Uh, we have a, a crushing shortage of personal protective equipment in this country. And, um, mm-hmm. and the reality of running out of PPE is redoubled by the terror of running out of PPE. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is not just simply that in, in hot zones right now, um, they're worried that they, th- th- that they physically are already running out. But even if they're not, that is always back of mind. How many times do I need to reuse this N95 mask uh, in order to make Mm -hmm. sure that I have something two days from now when I'm intubating a patient? So these are Mm -hmm. very, very real fears, not imagined at all. And um, I also worry about um, the psychological toll this is taking on physicians as they wait for a hotspot to flare where they live and work. Um, as they interact with the, I mean, you know, the medical community is small and tight for the most part. Um, you know, we keep in touch with each other from medical school and residency and fellowship and previous jobs and the internet has made the world even smaller for us. And Mm -hmm. so as these stories, um, get told and retold, particularly in private forums where we don't censor ourselves, um, bearing witness to each other's stories is, is important and also taking a toll. Right. But it's kind of tricky because you, you need to share, as you said before, in the beginning of our conversation, you need that social connection, but you also need to be careful about what that social connection and that information can do to you. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it can be really easy in times like this to, um, to be so caught up, particularly when you feel like there's nothing to do except bear witness, mm. uh, to become um, to become overwhelmed with with the bearing witness. There has to be space in it, and 
there's a strange guilt that comes uh, with the privilege of being able to step away for a bit, you know? Um, Mm, there's, it almost, you feel almost compelled to continue to be there and read and read and talk and talk because you know, the ability to step away at this time, not that we're going to be able to do it forever, but at this time is a privilege and it's very hard to watch, um, your colleagues in so much pain and be able to do nothing except bear witness. And so we continue to do it. And and mm-hmm. over time, when the stories we listen to are horrifying, it takes a toll. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is this constant onslaught. I mean, sometimes even now, I you know, I find myself looking at, I hate to even use this word, the tallies, yeah. you know, the tallies from different places. And we've all adjusted to this normal in such a strange way that we can actually, I mean, people... Well, no, I shouldn't generalize. I can look at numbers and just say, oh, this country had this many, this city had this many, and then continue eating my dinner. I think that's very human. I think that is a very, very human response because um, I, I I think that if we allowed the weight of this to put us on our faces every single day, we'd all be on our faces. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I think that that response is um, is a self-protective one, and I think it's necessary if we're going to continue to go about doing the work that needs to be done. I mean, let's face it, th- this is not the first time that any of us awakened and realized that mm-hmm. the world is a pretty terrifying place. <laughs> um, right. This is just a new terror, and it is one that is invisible and one that... Um, you know, isn't easy for us to, to roll up our sleeves and there's no visible enemy in this. What did you think about, or what do you think about people who didn't take this quite seriously enough or still say, and I know some of them, this, this isn't that bad, uh, you know, coronavirus, you know, we're overreacting. I think that's an incredibly human reaction too. I, Mm -hmm. I have some grace to give to those people, honestly. The public health strategies necessary to combat this aren't really satisfying, for one thing, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, I, again, I think it is a pretty human thing to hear information, particularly in this day and age when there's our our society is just saturated with such disinformation. I don't even want to call it misinformation. It's 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 deliberate disinformation um, to look at something that is this uh, serious and cock your head and and wonder if this is once again um, an overblown reaction to something. Mm-hmm. Also, I think it is a pretty human reaction to look at something terrified and tell yourself that's nothing. <laughs> right. I, I, that you know that that level of denial um, is incredibly human, incredibly human, and um, in all of us, I, denial is how man denial is, a, <laughs> is an important coping mechanism, even sometimes. So um, you know, I mean, if we didn't live with denial, none of us would ever get behind the wheel of a car. 
Right, right. If we didn't live with a certain amount of denial, um, you know, it would be very, very hard to do many things in this country, um, knowing what the actual threat of going out and doing them is. So mm-hmm. I think we all, we all, denial is a part of our collective coping mechanism. Right, which is in part, that's maybe why first responders, especially these doctors on the front lines, don't get a break because they can't be in any kind of state of denial and they can't tune out really. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So from a public health perspective, let's just, let's just pull the lens back on that one a little bit because um, I think that's the other piece of this that is incredibly frustrating. We as Americans in particular, but I, but I think also just, again, this is part of the human condition. We are accustomed to a problem presenting itself mm-hmm. and then having a segment of our society be deployed to handle it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in this situation, um, what we are saying is we have a common enemy. It is a micron big you cannot see it. Um, we have very, very limited capacity to fight it right now. And so we need to deploy every single American to stay home in their pajamas. <laughs> I mean, what kind of fight is that? <laughs> that's not a street fight. That's not how I pictured. I saw this great meme the other day that that showed how I pictured my apocalyptic outfit to look. And it was, you know, Xena out there, you know, in her, her, all her badass glory. Do I get to say that on, on this podcast? And, and is standing next to, uh, you know, this frumpy woman in her pajamas. And, and that's the reality of what we're being asked to do. It is a very unsatisfying role in a war to be asked to stay home in your pajamas. <laughs> And I think that Americans with our, you know, sort of cowboy go fight him, we faced the enemy and kicked its ass mentality uh, is very perplexed and underwhelmed (laughs) and and frustrated by our marching orders. Um, And it's it is also really difficult. It's it's not easy public health messaging either mm-hmm. because we're walking a really fine line between inciting panic, which we don't want to do because that mm. does not, none of us any good mm. and expressing the seriousness of this. So I think some of the best messaging in this has been to explain to people, look, this is a brand new virus. None of us have ever been exposed to it before, and therefore none of us have any natural immunity to it. The good news about this virus is 80, 85% of us will get it, and who get it will never um, experience any serious or severe symptoms. We'll get it, we'll get sick, and we'll get better, and then we'll be part of you know, that recovered and now immune group mm-hmm. that is necessary for this virus to burn itself out. So that's the good news. The other good news, it doesn't seem to um, affect our children Mm -hmm. in any severe way. Children seem to be largely spared from this. Um, And and the reasons for that are still being uh, 
delineated, but but what a gift. Can you imagine the panic we would be in oh, if yeah. this were a virus that were attacking children? No, I think that's I, true. We had that conversation in my house um, with my extended family a couple of weeks ago when we could still see them, <laughs> which was, right. you know, I mean, because some of my older relatives were not really sure that this was something they needed to worry about. And we had to, I've heard a lot about this, like the younger generation, my generation has to tell their parents to stay home because yeah. at least in some cases, because they didn't quite understand that it was a different animal. And yes. I thought this would not be the conversation amongst me and my friends. You know, like, should we go out? Should we not go out? If our children were the ones who were the most vulnerable. I mean, Absolutely. the panic that I would feel, I already feel panicked when my son coughed. You know, I've been feeling panicked when I hear coughing. Uh, I'm a little yeah. on edge. But if I knew that we were all worried about our children, the way we're worried about older and vulnerable adults, then I think there would be utter panic. Absolutely. There's no question. And there, there probably, well, I don't want to speculate about whether there would have been a, a more robust or earlier response, but I, I, I think that it's likely. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, so those are, that's the good news. The good mm-hmm. news is most of us will get it and recover with no problems and it seems to be sparing our children. Mm-hmm. Um, and thank God for both of those those truths. Um, the the so then why is it a problem? Why is it a problem? And it's a problem because, as I said, none of us have a natural immunity to it. Mm-hmm. We have no vaccine. We have no vaccine, and we're we're a minimum, I think, of a year out. Um, it usually takes eighteen plus months to come up with a vaccine. They're working really hard and really fast and, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sequencing is happening quickly. So, so maybe a year. Um, and for the record, America, when we get a vaccine for this virus, we're going to have a real serious conversation about vaccinations. Oh yes. (laughs) Yes. I, Just, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I I'm think coming back for that one. Yeah, and I, I think that people will probably be a little more open-minded too. Um, I, before I you, so. before you go to the next point, what about these, these stories of antibodies and antibody therapy being talked about right now in the news that taking people who recovered their, their like, you know, antibodies and helping to treat people who are sick. Highly, highly, highly experimental at this point, obviously, because everything we're doing is highly, highly, highly experimental, mm-hmm. um, but promising. Mm-hmm. So let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are some protocols that are coming out for how we go about collecting, um, you know, collecting those blood samples and so forth. So it, it will be interesting to see what comes of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there are multiple interventions that are being studied simultaneously. I have never seen anything like this in, in 25 years that I've been in healthcare. I've never seen so many rigorous um, uh, studies being deployed simultaneously searching for an answer. Mm-hmm. I find that very hopeful, mm-hmm. which leads me back to, you know, what's, what's up with this particular virus. So, we have no immunity. We have no vaccine. We currently have no treatment except supportive care for those who become critically ill. Now, the numbers out of uh, Wuhan and Italy, and they are changing at all times. I want to be clear about that uh, and being updated. 
um, and refined. But but the initial numbers show that um, between three and five percent of those who become ill become ill enough to require um, supportive care. That's a large number. That's mm-hmm. a large number. And um, and the death rate, which is probably the number we have the best, most reliable data on right now, although I think most epidemiolo- epidemiologists, statisticians, uh, and physicians um, believe that even death has been underreported to date. Mm-hmm. Um, the death rate... Uh, is higher than it is for, for example, seasonal flu. I heard a lot of people in the early stages of this saying, this is just another flu. What's everybody having a conniption fit about? Mm -hmm. This is not just the flu. The flu has a a mortality rate of about Uh, 0.1%. This has a mortality rate at full at order of magnitude higher than that on the low end. Mm-hmm. So um, much, much higher fatality rate with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Coronavirus also is a sneaky little son of a gun mm-hmm. um, in that you can be walking around infected and asymptomatic for about five days. It's about 5.1 days to the onset of symptoms from the point of infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the flu, it's about 24 to 36 hours. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot less time that you're walking around asymptomatic and infecting other people. Mm-hmm. And the final thing is something that um, is getting a lot of attention. I love that all these public health terminologies are, are out there now <laughs> called the r not. Um, and what that looks at is, is the infectivity of a, of an agent of an infection. Um, and in this case, the R naught of, uh, coronavirus is between, to the best of our calculations, somewhere between 2.3 and 2.7. Um, I saw numbers that were a lot higher than that. I haven't seen anything yet that's lower than 2.2, although, when we finally figure out what the true rates of infection have been, that that are not may drop as well. Mm-hmm. But what that means is this is a really infectious virus. Also, mm-hmm. um, the R naught of the flu of the seasonal flu is one point three mm-hmm. by comparison wow. for comparison's sake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, brand new virus, nobody's ever seen it before. No natural immunity, no vaccine, no antiviral treatments yet. Um, you know, no great therapies for it yet. And it's infectious and you can be walking around for many days infecting other people uh, Mm -hmm. without knowing it. Okay. So that said, in that background, having been laid out, how do you feel about answering some listener questions in in a more rapid fire way? I've got um, a a handful of questions that listeners have written in to ask me because they knew we were going to be talking. I love rapid fire questions. May I add one more thing to the discussion before we do of that? Of course. Okay. The reason that um, the, the public health strategy of suppression is so critically important in this particular pandemic is that what it gets us is more time mm-hmm. and we need to buy time. That's, that is the entire 
ball game, folks. <laughs> that's that's the beginning and end of this. We need to buy time. We need to buy time for our hospitals and our hospital systems and our healthcare system to ramp up their pandemic response teams. We need to buy time for ventilators to be built. We need to buy time for uh, PPE to be manufactured and shipped and received. We need to buy time to put um, staffing and space and systems and all of the things that that have to happen in order for us to be able to treat the percentage of people who we predict will become very sick when infected. Mm -hmm. It is not that everyone won't eventually, um, because this is going to become, eventually this virus is probably just going to become a part of the background uh, of viruses to which we are exposed year after year after year mm-hmm. in, the, in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to go away. We're not going to get rid of it the way that we we have gotten rid of smallpox, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to become background noise. What we need to do is make sure that um, if 70% of the population is going to eventually become infected with this, that all 70% don't become infected in the next month. Right. 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 If you're going to, if you're going to get this, you kind of wanted to get it really early or later, later. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That is exactly right. And so that's what we mean when we say flattening the curve. It not, it does many things. Not only does it prevent overwhelm of our, of our ERs and our ICUs and our frontline physicians, it also allows time for us for all of these wonderful trials that are happening simultaneously. There are, I think, four or six simultaneous drug trials being run by the World Health Organization right now. Mm-hmm. It gives us time to find antivirals that works. It gives us time to produce a vaccine. It gives it buys time. It gives us time to get to summer. Right. And maybe this starts to die back naturally in the summer like other coronaviruses. Mm-hmm. So buying time is is the whole key to this suppression strategy. And that rides on the d- daily decisions each one of us make about whether we're going to go out and if we are, how we're going to do it and how much we're going to engage. Right. And, and that actually is, that's a perfect lead up because one of the questions I have here is realistically, how long does isolation have to go on and can the country do it in waves? Mm. Those are both really great questions. The answer to the first one is a hard I don't know for sure and be very, very wary of anyone who tells you they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's not going to be as long as those of us who have been um, engaged in looking at and analyzing the data for a couple of months thought it might be. Hmm. So um, one of the great things in epidemiology is that when you get new data and updated numbers, you run new models. And so we have been uh, doing that. Well, not me, um, people much smarter than I am, frankly, mm-hmm. have been doing that daily, daily. 
So on March 16th, there was a report that came out of the Imperial College in the UK um, that looked at the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions um, to reduce COVID-19 mortality and healthcare demand. And it laid out three different strategies. And one strategy was do nothing and millions die. One strategy was do mitigation, which is basically just do the things that we would do with any infectious disease, isolate um, known cases, isolate their family, otherwise sort of carry on with business and millions die. Mm. And the third is what's known as a suppression strategy, which is what large parts, large swaths of the United States are currently engaged in, mm-hmm. which is um, enact sort of radical social distancing um, and uh, buy time for healthcare systems and physicians to get ramped up to deal with this, mm-hmm. um, get some time for the uh, community transmission to be tamped down, uh, if not eliminated, at least markedly, markedly reduced. And then slowly, gradually allow for some uh, renewed, you know, engagement in the real world. Mm-hmm. And uh, this report sent a lot of people, I mean, it was a very, very important moment in time because it really underscored in big black lines the importance of a suppression strategy. It's mm-hmm. what worked in uh, China. It's what worked in South Korea. It's what they didn't engage in quickly enough in Italy and mm-hmm. why they're having such huge mortality numbers in Italy. Mm -hmm. And then also Um, that's the behavioral change because if we all act as if we have it or that somebody around us has it and we're not touching our faces and we're washing our hands frequently, we're going to help that way too. I love that you said that. That is exactly right. It's, it's just everyone start behaving as if you have it. Mm -hmm. And then, and that if you don't act right, you're going to give it to somebody you love, your mom, your dad, your immunocompromised child, you're, you know, you're going to give it to someone you love. So act as if you have it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then yesterday and over the last 48 hours, there have been some, some newer, some, you know, additional numbers that have come out and um, that show that these suppression strategies are starting to work. And, and, and that if we can stay the course that perhaps we will hit a, a peak um, in some places in the next couple of weeks, two to three weeks. Um, New York maybe would be one of those places. We will continue to see death counts rise for another week after that, mm. even after the curve starts to flatten, because death follows about seven to 14 days after um, sort of peak incidents, mm-hmm. peak reporting. And then if we can maintain social distancing um, aggressively for another month or so, uh, we'll, we'll be where China is now, which is in a position to begin loosening some of those restrictions and returning to uh, life as normal. So that mm-hmm. puts mm-hmm. us uh, into June, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe early June. Now, this is not set in stone. Mm-hmm. I, I have not gone in to look at where we are with numbers and data today. Um, so everything might have changed overnight. Um, and it really, these, this is dependent on our behavior. Mm -hmm. So the more we, the more hardcore quote unquote, we are about our social distancing now, um, the faster this ends for all of us. Mm -hmm. So now what about 
countries like Germany and Israel who have, this is a question from a listener, some countries like Germany and Israel have lots of cases, few deaths. Could that be the case here in the U.S.? I would have to go and take a really hard look at what was different in Germany and Israel. Um, Mm -hmm. In Israel in particular, uh, I suspect they were much better prepared than we are in the U.S., uh, for this. I don't know if that is the case in mm-hmm. Germany or not. I will take a look though, because that's a curious question. Um, mm-hmm. my Israel yeah. was fully prepared for something like this. Their pandemic response, um, team and, and national pandemic response plan, um, had been in place for a very long time. Uh, I'm sure that they did immediate contact tracing. They closed their borders quickly. Um, you know, they instituted, uh, shelter in place, which the country is accustomed to following. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a tremendous sense, uh, in Israel mm-hmm. of, um, unity that, that we do the things we need to do for our, mm-hmm. our fellows, um, over individualism. So d- sort of mm-hmm. different, uh, mm-hmm. models of existence really. Um, between our two countries. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's another one. Is there, in fact, a gender disparity in the mortality rate of COVID-19? And do you think that it has any relationship to individual countries? Or is it a universal gender disparity if there is one? That's a great question. I know there was a lot of talk early on that there was some small gender disparity um, noticed in China. Um, and there were some some mm-hmm questions around why that might be, whether that was age plus gender, whether that was smoking plus gender, overall health plus gender. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that answer has been um, fully fleshed out yet. Um, There's not Mm -hmm. enough of a gender difference that women should be out dancing in the street with one another and assuming that they'll be fine. (laughs) Let me phrase it that way. There's there's no there's no party for (laughs) the female amongst us right now. Right. I gotcha. Okay. Um, if a person, here's another question. If a person has mild to average asthma, how do you recognize the difference in the cough? Um, and is someone with mild to average asthma considered high risk? Um, because this person who's writing to me sees different opinions online. Yeah. Um, that's because there's lots of different opinions about it and, and no consensus yet. I would say that the most important thing is for those who have mild to to moderate asthma, make sure you are um, doing the things that you're supposed to do every single day to keep that asthma well controlled um, in this time period um, Mm -hmm. for for several reasons. Number one, we're heading into allergy season, Mm -hmm. which is going to absolutely complicate the hell out of all of this. Right. I mean, it's it's not bad enough that we're still at the tail end of flu and cold season. Um, but now, you know, we're about to start seeing this explosion in everybody's allergy symptoms as well. It's happening here in Seattle. I mean, in my family sure. alone, we're just out of control already. Yeah. And and so the the best defense in this is a really, really good offense around management of your asthma. And so if you are someone who only does your asthma management when you start to get a flare, um, don't do that right now. <laughs> manage it every, you know, do the, do the things that you need to do to manage it every single day. Um, one of the things that we know is that it's a really dry cough that, that presents with COVID. Um, and, and 
interesting in asthma, um, the cough is very individual. You know, some some asthma patients have a have a dry cough, and some asthma patients have this. I have a son with asthma. He sounds like he's been smoking a pack a day for 60 years when his asthma flares. <laughs> so, you know, a really wet and junky kind of sounding mm-hmm. thing. So um, I don't know that there's a great way to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, utilizing, make sure that you're stocked up on your albuterol inhaler, mm-hmm. um, on your rescue inhaler. Make sure uh, if you have an MDI that you use that MDI because it's really the best way to deliver it deep into the lungs. Um, and then if you have cough affiliated with um, fever uh, and any kind of shortness of breath that isn't, you know, that isn't easily relieved with your usual asthma res- uh, rescue regimen, then call your hotline and talk to someone there and, and, and see what they suggest about getting some additional evaluation. Okay, great. Okay, question about why such a wide variety of symptoms. Some hay fever, um, some have, excuse me, question about why such a wide variety of symptoms. Some have fever, some do not. Some develop rapidly while others seem to be slowly developing. So that was another one. Yeah. Um, the most common symptoms are fever, headache, dry cough, back pain, um, some nausea without vomiting, um, abdominal discomfort, sometimes with di- diarrhea, um, loss of smell, which is, I think, a really, really interesting one. And I just read the first report on why that might be mm. anorexia, fatigue. I, as you run through this list, um, you realize that many of these are the same kinds of things that present when somebody has the flu or has a cold or has any other infectious disease that might crop up. And, and we react to these foreign invaders differently. So it, it just has to do with the human body Mm -hmm. and, and probably the initial viral load that you get that may, mm-hmm. that may play into it. Mm. If, um, if someone, you know, hacks in your face and they are, you know, at day six and they're carrying a really high viral load um, and you breathe that into your lungs, your first symptoms may look differently than if you, you know, touch something that, you know, someone who is infected touched an hour ago and then without thinking you touch your eye or you, right. you know, pick your nose or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it gets introduced in that way in a, you know, in a much smaller quantity. So um, it's just like every illness. The the overwhelmingly, the presentation is similar, but first symptoms may be a little different from patient to patient. Okay, great. Um, Here's another one. What's my risk at almost 72 years old with no underlying conditions, just fibromyalgia? Yes, that's a great question. So I will tell you that my mother is 73 and I've had her locked up in her house, which I'm <laughs> looking at right now because she, we live on a farm and her house is across the pond on the farm. From Oh, me. I was imagining like a tower, like Rapunzel. No, she, I think she's starting to feel that way though. She's not, <laughs> she's not pleased with me. And she becomes even less pleased when I pull old phrases out of my childhood, like, oh, this hurts me much more than it hurts you, mom. <laughs> She doesn't find me at all funny. Um, I've had my 73-year-old mother, who is in excellent health, locked up for three weeks. And the reason for that is that uh, the initial data that we got out of Wuhan was very concerning 
um, as people age. So if the um, overall mortality is 3%, um, then at between 60 and 70, it jumps to 6%. Between 70 and 80, it jumps to 12%. And above 80, it jumps above 16%. Mm -hmm. Um, I may be a little bit off on those exact numbers because it's been a while since I looked at them. Um, they may have, um, they may have adjusted some of those down, but it is not an insignificant increased mortality as we age. Mm -hmm. And we know that it has to do with, you know, just the natural weakening of the immune system over time, and probably also has some things to do with our our cardiovascular system and and something called ACE receptors uh, in the body and a depletion in those over time. Mm -hmm. So um, so be really careful if you're 72 and otherwise healthy. Please, by all means, go out and walk by yourself. Go out and do the things that you enjoy doing as long as you can be away from other people. Um, but but if you have someone else who can do your grocery shopping, I highly recommend that. Mm -hmm. um, if you you know, and if you don't, then find out which grocery store is offering special hours mm -hmm. for high risk folks. All of our stores around here are, have reserved the hour between I think seven and nine for um, older and other high risk patients to come in and do their shopping um, when the stores are spotless and when almost no one else is around to avoid um, infection. So here's another one related to groceries. If we're getting groceries delivered or packages, how much do we have to do in terms of wipe, wiping down, et cetera? So this is a respiratory virus. It's not going to it's not going to burrow through your skin into your bloodstream. It's not even going to attach itself to a cut that you might have and get into your bloodstream. It has to be inhaled um, or otherwise attach itself to, you know, your nasopharyngeal cilia, basically. So, so um, open packages um, and it, it dies with time. Right. So it, it, as time passes, even if it's on a surface, it's going to die. It really doesn't like to be outside of its host. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, have your groceries delivered. If you um, want to let them sit, anything that's not frozen or refrigerator immediate, let it sit for a little bit. Um, if you have gloves, put on a pair of gloves and, you know, begin putting things away. Um, and, and then wash your hands again and again and again. Wash your hands. That is the most important thing. And don't touch your face. That's the best way to make mm -hmm. sure that this isn't getting into you. Having groceries delivered, picking up takeout food, these are not the high-risk activities in which we are engaging. They just aren't. Okay. What about family distancing? I know we're supposed to be social distancing and I'm the only one in my house who does the grocery shopping and I wipe everything down like the cart, keys, door handles, steering wheel. But are you okay to still be hugging your family after being home? First of all, you're an A plus student. So you're my favorite. <laughs> um, this, this question, this question asker. asker is an A plus student who is my favorite. I, I think you should <laughs> highlight her for all to see or him. Um, <laughs> um, the second thing is hug your children, always hug your children. Um, I, one of the things that I do, and, and so, you know, full disclosure here, my husband is going back and forth to the hospital. 
I mean, that's his job. He's an interventional cardiologist. Um, you know, he takes care of incredibly sick patients on a daily basis, even when there is no COVID. He's going back and forth to the hospital. One of the things, the added layers of things that you might do um, is just change your clothes before you come into the house, you know, or come into the house, take mm-hmm. your clothes off, dump mm-hmm. them in the laundry. I mean, depending on what the what the sit up and setup in anyone's home looks like, leave shoes outside, come in, strip, put on something different, wash your hands before you do anything else, and then hug the stuffing out of the people you live with because that connection is critical. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how long does the virus survive in direct sunlight? Boy, I have no idea. Okay. <laughs> I figure I figured that's like that's the question. <laughs> I, I, I have absolutely no idea. I don't know if anybody does, um, but now I'm going to have mm-hmm. to go look that question up. Okay. Okay. And then my very last listener question is, um, and I think this is a really um, important one, what's the most helpful thing we can do for hospital staff and first responders? Yeah. Well, don't hoard. There is a shortage of hand sanitizer. There's a shortage of uh, disinfecting wipes. There are obviously critical shortage of critical personal protective equipment like um, N95 masks. Um, so if you have those things in large quantities, I don't want anyone to give up their last bottle of, of hand sanitizer. Please don't misunderstand me. Mm-hmm. But if, if you are someone who um, is a bit of a prepper and maybe you've been, you have been preparing for this day, this time to come for a long time and you realize, you look around and you realize that you have you know a stash of um, 195 masks or if you run a business – where you might have N95 masks or other types of personal protective gear, plastic uh, shields, face shields, things like that. Um, Those are great. Hospitals are taking donations. I have never seen anything quite like my colleagues begging the public for the things they need so that they can save lives without risking their own. That is a shattering uh, experience for me personally to watch happen. Um, if you have a 3D printer, um, you know, you might reach out and see if if there's a way to print some of the face shields. Um, I'm hearing all kinds of stories about people 3D printing um, parts for uh, ventilators that their hospital needs. Um, wow. You know, those are really highly specialized kinds of things that you might do. Um, and, and then I... I I can't overemphasize the importance of this. I'm hearing lots and lots and lots of groups, virtual groups cropping up around where they're, you know, sewing masks. Um, And I I think that there is something lovely about that work. And while they may not provide the level of protection that my anesthesia and pulmonary critical care and ER colleagues need in order to be safe and do their job, and um, I will um, link arms and hold the line with anyone who dares to tell them that they should put something like that on and then go intubate a COVID patient. Um, I think that there is something really lovely about a community coming together to do things like that. And those can be used to keep patients in waiting room. Um, to to increase a little bit of isolation for them to cover their cough, mm-hmm. um, so you know, I, and and we all need to be useful. We all need to be mm-hmm. useful in this time, or we're going to really go mm-hmm. stir crazy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kimia, thank you. I really can't thank you enough for, for sharing your time with, with me and my listeners and, and offering so much of your experience during this crisis. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And, and the other thing I would say is um, really, if you have a, a physician or nurse uh, in your life, um, I know that the tendency is to think, well, they're too busy for me to call, so I'll just shoot them a text, or they're too busy, period, so I won't reach out to them. Um, I think it means a lot to hear a voice on the other end say, hey, I'm thinking about you. I love you. I'm praying for you. You're in my, you know, in my morning intention, whatever it is. Um, these are important things. Have you gone back to lighting your candles now? every morning. In fact, I have one uh, that's been burning since 4.30 sitting here in the window of my office right now. So Mm -hmm. absolutely attend attend to those things that bring you balance so that you can be a trauma mitigator for others. That's that's another thing we all can do for each other. Thank you. Um, is Is there a place where listeners can find your work? Is there a website you'd like to share? Sure. Um, my website is uh, lodestar, L-O-D-E-S-T-A-R-P-C.com, lodestarpc.com, and that's the name of my company. Um, and uh, <laughs> this has made me realize that my website needs a huge overhaul, but <laughs> the information's there nonetheless. No, it's- as, you ha- as you are well acquainted no. from the beginning, technology is not my forte. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. And please take really good care of yourself. And, um, you know, thanks for all the work you do. You also. Thank you. It was a pleasure spending time with you today. My next guest is Lisa Butler. She is a licensed clinical social worker in private practice in the Chicago area. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much, Ronnie, for having me here. I'm um, honored to be a guest on your show. I'm so glad that you have the time, especially during this really fraught time that we're going through. Um, we are recording this uh, pretty much, I guess, what, in the second or third week of lockdown for Seattle. And, and where, where is Chicago or you know the Illinois area um, on lockdown and shelter at home right now? I think this is our first whole week. I'm pretty sure. So when you heard uh, the news of the pandemic reaching farther and farther and closer and closer to home, um, did you did you have some initial uh, feelings about what that was going to do for for your life and, and for your clients? Ronit, no. Um, I, I'm going to tell you the honest to God truth. Um, and maybe because of my experiences as an African-American woman and, you know, kind of the things that our community has gone through, I took it seriously, but I was like, um, it'll be fine. I didn't, I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. I started looking at numbers. I read the World Health Organization report Mm -hmm. and thought about it within the context of numbers of people on the planet and numbers of people in the United States. And I was like, Mm. oh, we'll be okay. And um, kind of had some conversations with my clients who were thinking about it the same way I was. And so initially I just was kind of like, okay, this will be fine. You know, um, it'll pass. It'll, you know, and I, you know, it'll, it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. I didn't until 
I think recent, probably late last week when I started seeing the numbers in New York. And I was like, hmm. Yeah. And then I started to wonder how this is really going to impact my clients. I Mm -hmm. am my spiritual practice, my emotional mental space really has me grounded. I, I, you know, I can always, I, I do get ex, you know anxious like everybody else about things. I get, you know, concerned, but I can always go back to a place of peace that I've cultivated in my, inside myself. Right. So, um, and then mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, just all the things that, that I've been through personally and all the things that, um, again, I've been through it with, you know, as a community and I'm like, okay, this too will pass. And, um, so I haven't freaked out about it much. Uh, you know, I've had my moments like everybody else, like, oh my goodness, I want to go, I want to go to dinner. <laughs> but well, that uh, sounds like me. I want to, I want to go shopping. I want to go to Macy's with my mom, you know, <laughs> things like that. But, um, not my clients is, you know, a, a lot of, I have a lot of single professional women. Mm-hmm. They don't have children. They live alone. Uh, unless they have partners, boyfriends or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I started kind of having these conversations with them. And that's when I figured out, okay, people are now starting to feel some kind of way about mm. this and, uh, uh, you know, real anxious. And I have a lot of clients who are, who have anxiety issues mm-hmm. and depression, and this certainly is not helping that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it got real, uh, uh, you know, some days ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it seems like we should have more time for self-care in a way. But I find uh, that self care is a little challenging right now. Do you do you see that as well in in the people that you treat? Um. Yeah, I, I see people who I've been working with for a while. When I had talked to a client last night, and just her appearance, and I was like, "Are you okay?" Mm-hmm. And she was like, "Not really." <laughs> and she's a really solid person who does meditate, who does mm-hmm. journal. And she was like, no, I'm, I'm worried. Mm-hmm. Like, how long is this going to go on? Um, she's in between jobs right now. She's like, you know, I got, uh, I was interviewing for this great job, was told that I had the position, but right now hiring is frozen. Mm-hmm. So what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, people, I, I've, I've, I'm talking more about, I've spent the last three or four sessions really uh, talking about this and giving tips and tools and reminding people to watch their thinking, mm. um, reminding folks to um, take care of themselves in ways that are comfortable for them, whatever that looks like for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really trying to provide support for people because this is scary for a lot of folks. And when you don't have, when you can't go any place, mm-hmm. you're single, you live in, you know, alone in an apartment or wherever. And it's just you mm-hmm. and your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm intrigued by that idea. I'm curious about how responsible we can be for our thinking and how we can go about changing it, especially when we're maybe like literally living our days in a vacuum. Do you have any, you know, thoughts about that? Or, you know, can you give me some tips on that? Like what's, what are some actionable things people can do to watch their thinking? Literally be conscious of what you're thinking. So here's the thing, Mm. all of our 
we all are a product of our experiences, right? Mm-hmm. All of us have been, our experiences have cultivated who we are and how we look at ourselves, others, and the world. So you got a lot of people with anxiety and depression who might have had some experiences, experiences, and probably did, that informs them to think and look at the world in not the most positive way. So they'll have mm-hmm. a thought. Oh, uh, let's just talk about <clears throat> specifically with COVID. So this is happening. So the thinking is, oh my God, is this the end of the world? I've had somebody just tell me, I had a client tell me the other day, she said, I just really feel that it is the end of the world. So, so, mm-hmm. so then my challenge to her was, well, can you give me the evidence that it's the end of the world? What is, what is besides us being told to stay in the house right now until um, they flatten this curve? What's your evidence that that's, it's the end of the world? And she's like, well, I watch all these movies. And uh, this is kind of how it was run, you know, going. And then the things just got worse and worse. And so then I said, well, let's think about it like this. So then we start talking about hard numbers. Numbers of people that live in the United States. Number of people that live in Illinois. The numbers of actual cases. The number of actual mm-hmm. people who have died. I said, so, that, so mm-hmm. now... Tell me again, from that space, where's the evidence that this is the end of the world? And she said, oh, Mm -hmm. well, maybe not. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. just having people be, listen, our thoughts are what get us into trouble. It is the, it starts in your head, whatever the situation is, depression, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, usually comes from a, a, a way of thinking about things that are, that is, that is not. Um, adaptive, right? So mm-hmm. uh, people don't like me. I'll just throw that out there. Um, and people don't like me because I'm not cute enough or I'm not smart enough or all these different things. And then with depression and anxiety, but depression specifically, then that thought takes you to a whole lot of maybe past things that have happened that have reflected that thing back to you, right? Mm-hmm. And then you start going down the rabbit hole because you can't you won't let you won't let it go. You won't challenge it with real evidence of that thing. So mm-hmm. what I encourage people to do is with anxiety and depression, particularly in this situation, is when you start having the thought, the world's ending, or oh Lord, what's gonna happen to my job? Those kinds of things. Yeah. Then you start, I want people to okay, I'm having a thought, I'm not gonna judge it. It's a thought. Mm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go away. It's not going to stay with me for the rest of my mm. life. It's a moment in time. Mm. The one thing I encourage people to do right away is put your feet on the floor. Feel the floor. Feel, feel your, wherever, if you're sitting, feel your body on whatever you're sitting on. And that mm. brings you back to this moment. And then it takes you from that thought, right? You're not thinking about that anymore. You're thinking about the fact that my, my, my butt is on this chair, my feet are on the floor. <laughs> and at this moment, I'm safe. I'm okay. And then to mm-hmm. really reframe whatever those negative thoughts are. So instead of it's the end of the world, well, right now I'm having to practice social distancing and I can't go to a restaurant at this moment. But in a few months, a few weeks, sometime, I'll be able to go back out. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the hope. <laughs> so being able to really kind of challenge that and turn it and then um, find some other things 
to do. Like I was telling my client yesterday, I said, you know, where are your inspirational readings? Where, where your, where your, where's your journal during this time? And she's like, I haven't been doing it because I've just been sitting up worried about this, right? <laughs> so let's, let's 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 do that again. Let's go find something to to read. To to, to she said, what what are you doing every day? So I told her, I said, these are the five things I do before I walk out of my room every morning. But I but here's the the thing with me, Monique, I do it every day. So then. So then I can, you know, it's it's a little. I can go back mm-hmm. to that place of peace a little quicker when I start having those thoughts because I do it every single day, which is why those these things are called practices: mindfulness, meditation, uh, uh, yoga. They're called practices for a reason because <laughs> you got to do them. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean to get the results, right? So just having people um, reframe their thinking and to and to provide evidence for themselves mm-hmm. that of whatever the thought is. And, and when you can't find that evidence, and I love doing that to clients. Okay, so what's the evidence that you're not good enough? You got a master's degree from U of C and blah, blah, blah. So what's the evidence that you're not good enough or smart enough? And then they can go, oh, I, I don't right. have any. Right. <laughs> so just to, re- to just to turn it, you know? So, and it's not and it's not as easy as I'm saying. Obviously, if that was the case, then I wouldn't have a practice, <laughs> right? Uh, but, um it is that's what therapy is and that's what that's what the practices are supposed to do they're supposed to build you up in those areas so that when all hell has broken loose around you you can find a place mm-hmm. of peace mm-hmm. even within that right by managing mm-hmm. what you're thinking about. yeah and it's it's kind of makes me think that um thoughts are not facts you know thoughts are thoughts are thoughts yes ma'am that that's the key that they're, they're right they are yeah. not concrete, although <laughs> I think sometimes we've been, our experiences have have cultivated in us these these thoughts that have congealed and it almost is like, a, mm-hmm. it's a fact. So it makes it hard for people to disconnect from it yeah. because all of their experiences in their minds have created the, whatever that thought is, it's real. But it, they're not. And that's what I'm, yeah. and I, that's where I want people to get back to. These are, your thoughts are not their thought, but they, they come and they go. We have a million thoughts a day. Oh my God. If we were, what, what happens if we were tied mm-hmm. to all of them? <laughs> We'd be dead. <laughs> and right. the other thing too, Ronita, is that <laughs> for me right now is talking to clients and people about how chronic stress from those thoughts break down the body because the mind and body are one there's no there's no separation so you, you're doing all that it, it keep those yeah. thoughts keep you keep your heart rate up they keep your immune system uh, from performing in the ways that it should which make you more susceptible to disease so that's why another reason why mm-hmm. I think it's so important for people to to understand the importance of watching their thinking because again your thinking can put you in heaven or hell on earth <laughs> you ain't got to die and wait to go nowhere mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you're you know you you live in <laughs> either there you know either in heaven or hell if you don't manage what you're thinking and thinking about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people have, um, you know, there's different mm-hmm. challenges for everyone who is in a shelter at home mm-hmm. or a lockdown situation. A listener wrote to me um, mm-hmm. about friends who are alone. And what, what this listener wrote was, my friends are really struggling. I want to ask about loneliness and depression. Um, you know, people with families are having a hard time with the chaos, but people isolated are very lonely. I think many are questioning all of their decisions mm-hmm. and the stress can be overwhelming to feel mm-hmm. so alone during this time. I, I agree. I, I, I just talked to a client today and she said, I'm, I'm really struggling for the first time with loneliness. And um, mm-hmm. here's the thing. Um, emotions and feelings are, are fine. It's just whether or not we tie ourselves to them, right? It's okay sometimes to feel lonely. That's natural. That's not, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with, what happens is when mm-hmm. you feel lonely and then the thoughts start coming and I'm by myself and I'm, you know, nobody cares. I'm just here. You know, this is a time t- that people should be reaching out to friends, to family, you know, call people, FaceTime them, check in with people that you haven't checked in with before. Check in with yourself. You can do that by, you know, journaling, um, um, moving your body in the house, you know, yoga. There's so many different avenues for us to, to, to communicate with other people at this point. And to you know to, to commute to to get to know ourselves better and to, to be reflective, but loneliness is a real thing, and I, I think I think a lot of people feel lonely, felt lonely before this, right? I think a lot of us, a lot of us, um, yeah. the busyness. Because I don't know about you, but I I have I'm running on the weekends from one event here, go to dinner, going to a party, this place, that place. Listen. <laughs> Some of that busyness yeah. is to keep, is avoidance. It's not wanting to deal yeah. with yourself. It's not wanting yeah. to deal with the stuff that comes up when there's no noise. Right? So, a lo- mm-hmm. and I would say that during this time, that's what people, that's the part that's scary to people. I got to, I got to, I got to do, man, it's just me. And whatever has been going on in me that maybe isn't, the best, like feelings that I'm not, mm-hmm. that I've been pushing. Now I got, I don't have any place to go to, to, to avoid it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, yeah. that's hard. And that's when people, that's where some of my worry, I was just thinking about this before you, before we start talking. I'm so interested in the suicide rates during this time because mm. there, I think there's going to be a big correlation between um, rates going up with older people, perhaps because they are the demographic that are at greater risk for suicide anyway. And you know, mm-hmm. this pandemic has hit them hard. They're not yes. just getting sick. A lot of them are dying. They make up the bigger bigger percentage of deaths in this pandemic. So I'm worried mm-hmm. about them. And I'm also worried about young people who don't have, who are lonely and, and don't have an outlet and who don't have a therapist to give them tools and to share with, um, letting their thoughts overwhelming, overwhelm them. Particularly when you start thinking about People who have lost their jobs, who don't need, who don't have any yeah. income, who are worried about, you know, how they're going to eat, <laughs> how they're going to pay their yeah. bills. It gets overwhelming. 
So it is. And I saw, I saw um, a news bulletin today and, and I had been thinking about this, that there's been a spike in domestic violence calls. Of course. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and that, that really concerns me too. I I really think about uh, people who are in homes and families, adults and children that are not havens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, and, they, and they've been talking about that a lot. And people on my Facebook page have been saying, you know, we have to continue to affirm the safety of of women and children who are in homes with people who are abusive and they can't yeah. leave. So Right. Even if you had a plan in place, you couldn't follow one right now. You could not. And, oh, which really kind of highlights some work we need to do around those systems and, and that, that whole thing. Because... Mm-hmm. Whoever thought we'd be in this situation, I know I never, I'm 50 years old. I've never experienced anything like this. So No, I said to another guest that I thought I already knew all the things I should be worried about in my life. I did not, I didn't think of a pandemic. Yeah, (laughs) me either. (laughs) Me either. And you know what's funny? And out of that, you know, people are saying, are mad at people. I, I see a lot of scolding going on on Facebook. We had a warm day in Chicago the other day. People rushed outside, mm-hmm. right, <clears throat> to walk on the lake and this, that, and the other. And people out there, ah, oh, you, you guys are going to get us killed. And, and I'm like, look, we got to have compassion for people. People are tired of being in the house. Yeah. And yes, yeah, social distancing is, but people don't know how to handle this. This is new for everybody. So please, people, let's practice compassion for folks who just want to get out of their houses for a little mm-hmm. while. That's and cool. I think, you know, t- yeah. to the point that you were making before about reaching out to people, you know, especially people who might be alone, it's it, as much as the mm-hmm. people who, I think it's both. I think that if you are alone and you, you don't have someone who you live with, you should try a little harder to make phone calls or, you know, FaceTime someone. Don't worry sure. about bothering them, sure. you know, just reach out, even if okay. it's to tell them something silly. And and if you do live in a family situation or with a partner, you know, maybe cruise through your you know contacts and call someone who you know lives alone. Just give them a call. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. This is this is a time again. I think so much good can be birthed out of this. So much reconnection with people, reconnection with ourselves first, and then reconnection with other people. Mm-hmm. Right, folks that you haven't talked to, people that you that you've been saying I need to call that person, I need to check yeah. in on that person, and you haven't had a chance to because of your busyness. Now you're slowed down and you mm-hmm. can. And I'm also say this too. Um, uh, open your shades and your blinds. Let some light into your mm-hmm. place. Turn the lights on <laughs> if it's cloudy. Because it's Chicago's Chicago's weather now has been reflective of the mood of the mm-hmm. country for the last couple of days, except that one day that it was sunny. So it's just cloudy and dreary and rainy mm-hmm. here. So every day I get up and I turn on every freaking light mm-hmm. <laughs> and I turn on music. And I watch stuff that I haven't seen on TV when I have time. And Lord, that, that's very, because I'm, I'm more busy, it seems like now, than I was when I was able to drive. Right. But, um, so it's like, turn on some music, engage some things that you haven't, the, the, those Netflix mm-hmm. shows that you've been meaning to watch or some documentaries and make sure you let it be light. Yeah. Light. Don't, don't watch anything hard right no, now. No, exactly. Watch, yeah, watch something that's fun and funny and 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 read a go pull out your um, Chelsea, Chelsea Handler books. <laughs> read those because those are hilarious. She's a mess, but <laughs> read that. You know, it's it's just like those are the things that you want uh, to do now. You want to make sure mm-hmm. that you that you're doing all that you can in your space to create 
a place where you want to be since you have to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So a question about a question from someone with kids um, came in. It was how realistic should you be with your kids about the threat of the virus? I don't want to make my kids crazy and anxious, but I do think it's important to explain how serious this is. Um, it depends on how old they are. I wouldn't be, you know, you got to be real careful with little kids because they can't mm-hmm. understand it. It gets scary for them. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, with older kids, you can say, listen, um, this is the reality of the situation, right? Like people are getting sick because this, this virus is contagious. And so we're staying, we're having to stay in so that you won't get sick, that I won't get sick, that it, it let's, let's just say uh, it's a mom or dad and, and you got to go take grandma groceries. So explain it to them like, okay, so if I get something, if I go out or you go out and you get, get the virus, and then we take grandma her groceries, then she may get it, right? And you don't, we, we don't want to be responsible for other people getting sick, especially people that we love and care for. I think that's a real mm-hmm. honest way to explain it. Um, to, mm-hmm. to, and also, if you have older kids who are teenagers, you can explain it to them within the context of numbers too. Like, these are the people, the, the World Health Report that came out last week to me was amazing in that it really broke it down by age, who was dying, um, the recovery rate is 80 to 85%. I mean, that's huge. Mm-hmm. Last night, Ronit, on the news, uh, I want to say it was the national news. My mother has the news on over here 24-7. I never see the news until I come to her house. And so last night, they were on. The, I was in the kitchen with her and the the man the reporter was talking and he said listen i just want to be i just want to say this there are more people who get it who have mild symptoms and recover i need mm-hmm. to say that everybody's not dying from this there's a small percentage of people that are really actually dying and they they've given us pretty much every um you know all the details about those people they're older generally speaking or, mm-hmm. And if they're not, they have underlying health issues. And a lot of people have asthma and, and lung mm-hmm. conditions and things like that, that maybe you didn't know about, right? Well, how he, he 25 and he, you know, he passed away from it, but we don't know what his health condition was. Just because he's young doesn't mean, you know, he's in great health. So just really explaining to older kids with, within the context of, of those facts, right? Like who's getting it, who's dying from it and um, creating a fun space in your house for your kids too. You know, as much as you right, can. I know, right. they, I know they're getting on some of you all's nerves. I know by now. I, even, <laughs> I can't even imagine. My 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 godsons are in their thirties. I couldn't imagine being in the house with <laughs> like four or five kids. So. Oh. So here's a here's a good lead in to the the last question I want to ask you, which is um, kind of about big events in in teenagers and kids' lives, like graduation and prom. So the question came in. How to strike the right balance with kids between allowing them space and support for their sadness or anger about missing out on things that are really important to them during like sports season, prom, sweet 16 parties and things like that, while helping them keep perspective in the big picture. Um, this this isn't a life threatening issue. And the, and the listener did want to mention that this is sort of a privilege question here, um, not a, a life threatening issue. But this is a, a huge yeah. thing emotionally for lots of adolescents to manage. Sure it is. And you know what? You can you can do both, Ronit. You can hold sadness and disappointment and you can hold hope at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, a, and an understanding that, that this too will pass 
and that I'll, I'll be able to go outside in, in some weeks um, and continue my life. But I think it's okay for people to have feelings of sadness and disappointment about big life-changing kind of events that they're now going to miss. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's perfectly okay. What is not okay is if, is if they can't move from those feelings. That's when we get in trouble mm-hmm. when they when they when they let those feelings overwhelm them with the, with those thoughts. So, engaging your children, talking to them, letting them express their feelings to you about disappointment with with not being able to go to prom. Look, who doesn't want to? I mean, people plan for proms. I mean, the year before it, it actually happens, mm-hmm. right? Graduations, weddings. I mean, yes, there's going to be a lot of disappointed people um, moving forward in the next few months because things have had to be canceled Mm -hmm. or or rescheduled. Um, But just talking to them about it, letting them talk about it. Um, I was looking up today because I looked at your questions and I thought to myself, let me, because I never looked this up before. I don't work with children in my practice. Mm -hmm. I work with teenagers. I'll work with you if you're like 13 or 14 Mm -hmm. on up. But, um, and I looked into meditations for kids. There's a lot of stuff out there. Mm -hmm. Calm has some things on there. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube. And it looked like it was like different age groups. So also engaging them in that as as coping um, skills and strategies around their feelings. Meditation, um, teaching young kids mindfulness. That's huge. I mean, that's something that's a huge uh, piece of CBT for young people Mm -hmm. is teaching kids um, how to be mindful, how to bring themselves back to the moment and not be in the future worried about what is and what is not going to happen. Um, making your, having your kids understand and know that this is not a permanent situation, although it may feel like it right now. Mm-hmm. It's not. We'll be able to go out. They're just trying to make sure that people are safe and they're trying to make sure that they are safe. So, um, I think you have to be honest with kids and you have to allow them to, to feel their feelings mm-hmm. um, and also know that there is hope and that um, things will get better. Mm-hmm. And um, looking forward to having a good time when we can get outside. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and you know what I'm thinking too? People can, in terms of proms and stuff, listen, I'm hopeful that some school uh, districts around the country will we'll let the prom happen later. Yeah. You know, if, if we, let's just say we get out of the house by May, <laughs> maybe plan the, maybe plan. And I'm, I'm, so let the, let the, let the prom happen later on, later than it was scheduled, still have the prom, you know? So, and, and, and other fun things that kids are planning to do now, graduations and things. It's we, look, tell your kids when we do get out, we're going to have a big party. You know, you can, we will plan something, um, um, to take the place of the actual, whatever the event was supposed to be. Right. So just give them something to look forward to. So, yeah. 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 And, and uh, there are some online resources uh, for people for mental health uh, support, aren't there? If someone's struggling, if someone is feeling a little bit worse than, than they should be feeling at this point, you know, and they don't have any resources already, maybe they haven't gotten themselves into therapy yet. So they're not in like a zoom situation, a zoom call, right. where can someone, if they're feeling like they might be getting into crisis, uh, call or, you know, w- what are some resources that are available? So uh, obviously if you're having feelings of, of suicide, let me just say that right off the top, 
uh, please call the National Suicide Hotline. I do not have the number, Ronit. I don't know if, if okay, I can. I'll post it. Yeah, post, yeah, post, post the it. number. Um, please reach out. And if you and if 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 you actually have a plan and you know you're moving forward with that, go call nine one one. Go to the emergency room. I have to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of wanting to reach out, oh my goodness, yeah. So there's a bunch of uh, places you can go. Um, to to get therapy, I'm gonna give you. Um, I'll give you a couple. So there's a place called a, a website called Open Path Collective. Um, they mm-hmm. have therapists all over the country who provide therapy sessions on sliding fee scales from thirty to sixty dollars. So you won't pay any more than thirty to sixty dollars for sessions. ZenCare, which is also uh, another therapy referral source, that's a really good one, and it's ZenCare dot com. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, and for any listeners, there's a therapy for Black girls. It's also a great referral site, and also Psychology Today. Um, mm-hmm. They have obviously uh, therapy referrals, and everybody is doing online stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. no, nobody's in the office at this point. We're all <laughs> online yes. for the most part. So, right. um, th- those are those are some spaces that you can definitely find um, help if you need it. Okay. Yeah. And then if someone, if anyone wants to learn more about you, what's a good place to find your information? So I'm, um, my website is www.lisa, L-I-S-A, Butler, B-U-T-L-E-R-L-C-S-W.com. And you can find about uh, about me there and all about my work and what I'm doing in the world uh, on Mm -hmm. that website. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got connected and that you were able to spend some time helping listeners. I really appreciate it. No problem. I I feel honored to have been asked to do this, um, invited to do this by you, and I'm so glad for the connection as well. Thank you. Take care of yourself. My third and final guest is Jessica Barker. Jessica has been in the mental health field for 20 years, and her specialty is eating disorder research. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Roni. Thanks for being here, especially during such a busy time. Um, I have a listener question, which was this. I'm concerned about how people with eating disorders are handling quarantine and the general lack of control and disruption in routine right now. What what are you seeing right now and what would you say to a listener with this type of concern? Well, first of all, that's a really great question and something that we should all be concerned about. Anytime there's a disruption in any of our routines, we all handle it very differently. So how are people with eating disorders handling it? Well, kind of like the entire rest of the population, some are taking the opportunity to really dig in deep and work on some of the things that have been more difficult when they don't have as much time, and others are really struggling with changes in routine. I think what I've seen the biggest struggles with are not having access to direct support, being able to go into appointments. A lot of the time at home, people on the internet especially are talking a lot about use this time to exercise or to lose weight. And I think those influences are really coming out and people are having to regulate and be really, really intentional about how they want to use their time. And of course, there's the huge food aspect for, for at the very beginning of this, a lot of people were told to stock up on food, and that can be a really, really difficult thing for people with eating disorders. Then you have the scarcity of going into the stores and not necessarily having what you might be looking for on the shelf. And all of that can be really, really scary for a person who either has a 
is directly in their eating disorder right now or who has a history of it or even for people that have not necessarily had an eating disorder but have food insecurities. And I think the number one thing that we can look at in how we deal with this is realizing we're not in a normal time. Just because something is exacerbated now doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be exacerbated later. When this is all over, things could go back to normal or they could get worse. So really just paying attention to what it looks like, giving yourself some leniency to either try new things or to be struggling a little bit, I think can really help people get through this time. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't considered all that. I mean, I knew on a in a general way that this could be a difficult time for people who've experienced eating disorders, but I didn't even think about that aspect that you just mentioned about needing to stock up, the idea of scarcity and, and to have all of that around you and the worry that it won't be there, that it must be very difficult for people who are trying to recover. Yes, absolutely. What we know about eating disorders too is whenever we restrict our food intake. The thoughts around food increase, actually. So when we're worried that we aren't going to have enough, our body actually goes into a state of foraging. We're, we're looking all around, all around all the time to find food. If our body doesn't have enough, our biological drives to get enough kick mm -hmm. in. So if you're even looking around and not seeing enough, your body is going to be going more and more, which is going to increase those perseverative thoughts around food. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of people who are seeing these kinds of, I've seen posts that say something like the quarantine 15, I've gained, you know, um, or I, I, you know, even when I do virtual chats with friends, I'll hear them say, oh, you know, I can't stop eating. I put on so much weight. So I guess, would you say that those kinds of little threads of conversation are not too unlike the ones people with eating disorders experience in daily life? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly it. They, there are things that are around us all the time. And now we have a very specific thing to blame them on. Plus, we have a lot of the distractions of our everyday life taken away. A lot of this talk falls into the category of what I like to think of as just daily chit chat. Most people don't realize that it's difficult for people with eating disorders to hear these kinds of things. They don't even realize the impact on themselves of talking about these things all the mm -hmm. time. Sometimes even we, we just have a lot of things taken away from us right now. And one of the biggest things that is a common thread in everyone's life is food in our bodies. So we kind of fall back to blaming or or attributing whatever is going on to our bodies. Hmm. If you were at work 40 hours a week right now, you might not even be getting on the scale as much. So I would kind of ask people who are noticing these, is this any different than normal? And you're just noticing it more mm -hmm. now. Right, right, right. And so if you have had an eating disorder or you're recovering from one, um, I mean, maybe people in that category have resources that they use, but are there any tips you can offer, some some quick little kind of um, ideas you can offer for people in that category to help navigate right now? Absolutely. So the first thing would, of course, be identify any resources that you had before the epidemic happened. They're likely going to be still there for you, although it might be in a little bit of a different way. 
there's a lot, uh, so many different therapists are offering telehealth right now. And one of the most amazing things I've seen is the amount of people that have offered either free or reduced care. And one silver lining to all of this is that telehealth has really become something that's more mainstream and people that maybe even didn't have access to as many resources before are having access in a way that they never did. I've seen people offering live meal support on Instagram. Just show up, turn on your Instagram and eat with another person. Mm -hmm. That is certainly something that wasn't happening six weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah. And what about if you have someone in your life that you are concerned about, um, what are things that loved ones can say or do to help protect or encourage or support people who they're worried about that have eating disorders during this time? What a great question. So, of course, we're around people that we love more and we're maybe noticing things that have been there or they're coming up even more because we're in quarantine. So if you're concerned about someone, first of all, I just tell people, ask questions. Make sure you know what you're looking at. Maybe a person is is a little more nervous and they just need a reminder to get back on track. Uh, the other thing that people can do is take the focus away from bodies as much as possible. From Model the, model the talk that they would want to hear another person saying. And then also help get people to the resources they need. A lot of the eating disorder treatment centers are still accepting new clients. Just because they're in the telehealth phase doesn't mean that you can't do an assessment. And residential treatment and inpatient treatment remains open for now. Partial programs are operating via telehealth as well as uh, individual sessions. And I think really it's just having those conversations being willing to hear what the other person is saying and not just assume that they don't know what they need. Listen to them and help them get what they need to get through this. Thank you. Um, it's it's a trying time for us all. And I'm, you know, I think it's important to just remember that everyone's experience of this experience is different. Exactly. That's summed it up perfectly. <laughs> All right. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time today and please take care of yourself. And you as thank well. Thank you. For more on Jessica, you can find her at www.exert-ed.com or at Instagram at exert underscore eating disorders. Thank you for listening to this episode of And Then Everything Changed. If you have any questions or would like to follow up with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and at atecpodcast.com. I hope this information was helpful to you. And if it was, please share it with your friends and family because they might also be able to use these resources. Thank you so much and take good care of yourself. Hi, thanks for listening to this episode of And Then Everything Changed. Since you're here, you probably appreciate stories that take you into another person's life and their experience. My friend Becky Odd-Jenison has a podcast that does just that. She began the Death Dialogues Project to help her cope with her grief, and now she interviews guests about their losses and helps to remember and celebrate their loved ones' lives. You can find the Death Dialogues Project on most podcast platforms, and she has new episodes every week. Once again, that's called the Death Dialogues Project.
Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.